We're back again this week, Charles. We took a break in the last few weeks during the mourning period for Queen Elizabeth II. From my perspective, first of all, what a wonderful send-off. Yes. But also a wonderful opportunity to see ordinary people across Britain standing together in queues, watching the funeral procession go by, and just that sense of being a person in this country and having some really important things in common. And I suppose at the same time, as people in this country, we're currently going through quite a lot of disruption because of the events of the last week following the budget announcements. Absolutely. It's very much a banding together spirit. You've got the prospect of certain people who were hoping to buy houses as of a few weeks ago and now potentially can't get a mortgage. You've got people who are going into the winter not quite knowing how they're going to be able to afford their energy bills. There's been a big scare on will people's pensions still be paid. That one seems to potentially be under control, but it's a very big deal. And then, of course, inflation more generally, which is only going to get worse now with the fall of the pound and is affecting lots of people. So I suppose I think it's good to acknowledge that the average person in this country is struggling. Insurance is one of the things that people need. Insurers themselves need to be strong and able to provide the protection people need. But there's potentially disruption for insurers as well, because as part of the government's announcements, they've decided that they're also going to scrap part of Solvency 2, or the EU element of our insurance regulation. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And I think it's worth noting that this is such a fast and quick changing subject. So we are recording this episode on the 3rd of October but who knows what the next few days, if nothing else, will hold. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website. Let's kick off with this week's episode. On the 23rd of September, the government announced various things as part of its budget, and we're all still busy dealing with the fallout from that. There's been some pretty unprecedented disruption to the UK economy. That's not what this podcast is about, although I have no doubt we'll touch on some elements of that as part of our discussion today. But one of the announcements that you may have missed amongst all the other turmoil is the government's intentions as regards the regulatory regime for insurers. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm really pleased to welcome back for the third time. Ed, is that correct? Yeah, for the third time. Yeah, Ed Harrison. So previously, we've had lots of conversations on inflation, which once again, I'm sure we will briefly touch upon today. But yeah, really pleased to welcome you back to the podcast, Ed, to discuss this new development and potential new headache for insurers going forward. Thank you very much. It's great to be back again. I mean, I suspect like both of you, I was paying a lot of attention to that fiscal event or mini budget or whatever you want to call it just over a week ago. I was actually thinking about it with the inflation hat on that I've been wearing before. But as I'm sure some eagle-eyed people noticed, the government did also drop that little clangor in there that they were planning to scrap EU rules from Solvency 2 to free up billions of pounds of investment. So I think actually it's a great topic to pick up on and see exactly what the government might mean by that throwaway sentence. I was actually fortunate enough to not be in the UK when that announcement happened. I was walking in the Pyrenees. I had absolutely no phone signal or anything. Got back on the Sunday into civilization and 
alerts from my partner and from the news of just everything that was happening. I was like, oh, so I didn't miss much while I was <laughs> away there. Absolutely amazing. I think what it shows, if anything, is actually that being prime minister of the country is quite a difficult job. I think we're all just so used to a lot of the mainstream decision making being quite sensible and being on the right path and yes we might not agree with it but at least it seems to be running along smoothly and then when we see something that is unprecedented come along and crash the car to some extent suddenly it seems very surprising first thing i guess in my mind it is these plans to do something about solvency 2 and the way that it interplays with uk law post brexit that's not a new idea is it the idea of making some changes? No, I think it's fair to say the Treasury has been consulting on some changes to Solvency 2 for the past year or so. They reached the end of that consultation in April, published a sort of policy statement on that. And now the PRA is doing a subsequent follow-up on those rules. And the areas that they were most interested in were reforms to the Solvency 2 risk margin and to the matching adjustment. Now, the PRA and the Treasury's view is that there'll be some benefit to the insurance industry in terms of reductions in capital coming from a combination of those two things, but probably not the billions and billions of pounds that Liz Truss is hoping for. And with those two changes that you mentioned, the risk margin and the matching adjustment, to what extent do you think that's focused on the life assurance or annuity industry? And to what extent is it focused on general insurers? So, I mean, the matching adjustment is almost 100% focused on firms with very long-tailed liabilities, such as life insurers. The risk margin, it's one of those provisions that tends to get more onerous and bigger as your liabilities get longer-tailed. So, again, it is mostly focused on life. But on the other hand, general insurers, particularly those in the London market with perhaps longer-than-average-tailed liabilities, will also stand to benefit from these changes. And so you mentioned that potentially the government's announcement on the 23rd of September not quite matching up with the kind of initial benefits discussed or looked into by the PRA. Is that because there are potentially going to be further adjustments on top of it? Or is there something else that's going on within that? I think there's a couple of different ways we can look at this. First of all, I think you could say there's always a difference between government rhetoric and actual policy deliverables at the end of the day. So it may be as simple as delivering this treasury reform that's already in the pipeline, already oven ready, as a certain former prime minister might say, will be enough for Liz Truss to claim that she has scrapped Solvency II. I certainly don't think the insurance industry would see it that way, even if they do broadly welcome the reforms the Treasury are proposing. The other angle that I think we could look at it from is to ask what Liz Truss's overall objective is in reforming Solvency II. Clearly, there's an ideological angle to it, which is to create a sort of bonfire of regulatory red tape and to streamline the UK economy that way. But there's the other angle to it, which is this pledge that the purpose of scrapping Solvency 2 is to create more investment by insurers in the UK economy. And so what that suggests is that when scrapping Solvency 2 and replacing it with something else, if that's the intention, it would have to be also resulting in some sort of capital reduction for insurers to achieve that policy aim. And to what extent do you think the government is thinking of capital reductions? To what extent do you think they're thinking of asset eligibility? So 
let's say at the moment where investment in certain UK investments might not give you the credit that you would otherwise get from certain other investments, they'd be looking at that. That's a really interesting question. I think part of the challenge is that capital reduction implies lowering of policyholder protections, and that always starts to become an emotive subject. But at the end of the day, it is hard to have deregulation without sacrificing some of those protections. So there is always an element of trade-off. In terms of your specific point, for firms that are on the standard formula, I think there are very definite efficiencies to be gained by freeing up certain asset classes. I mean, for an example, investment in infrastructure, I think in the standard formula world is treated as a type two equity, and that attracts quite a high capital charge in terms of its perceived riskiness. I think the challenge to implementing that and making it a wide scale reform is that most of the UK's funds, I believe, are tied up in non-standard formula firms, and they have much more flexibility already to assess the riskiness of those assets that they're investing in as they deem appropriate. So just tweaking the rules wouldn't necessarily automatically change the way in which insurers invested their portfolios. Stepping back and looking more broadly, do you think that deregulation or ripping up of the red tape or reducing it significantly would be, A, something the insurance industry would welcome and B, be a benefit for policyholders and customers? I think that's a really good question. There's a couple of aspects to it again. So to some extent, I think it's useful to separate the policy objective of investing in the UK from what insurers might welcome in terms of deregulation. I think if you ask a typical general insurer which aspects of Solvency 2 they probably find most onerous, it's perhaps more the amount of reporting that has to be done and some of the specific aspects of the quantitative reporting templates in particular. To add to that, I know my first thought when the announcement came out was that actually a more generalized move away from Solvency 2 might allow smaller insurers who are currently almost forced into the standard formula world to take more responsibility, but also have more flexibility in how they go through the risk-based approach to setting capital. And I think that would be advantageous. I definitely like that in the sense that we had a regime prior to Solvency 2 in the UK where the use of capital models for setting your regulatory capital was becoming much more widespread. And of course, some firms' capital models are more sophisticated than others. And where the models perhaps lacked the degree of sophistication that the regulator wanted, they, they would negotiate a suitable loading with the firm. But what I liked about that system was firms were thinking actively about how to model their risks. Now there's so many firms who don't really have that option because they don't have the resources to get internal model approval. So the model kind of sits on the shelf gathering dust. I think it's fair to say that what we have as a result of Solvency 2 is an insurance regime in which it is difficult to enter as a new player, as an insure tech startup or someone with a bright idea because of the amount of regulatory red tape. And I think the standard formula and also the amount of reporting are two areas that could be reduced and make that easier for particularly small niche insurers. I don't think that gets us very far, though in terms of actually helping with the government's overall objective. So it's not necessarily the direction that I'd expect the government to focus on if they were to go further than the reforms the Treasury already has in the pipeline. I guess a concern I have when I hear 
deregulation is what was the purpose the regulation was brought in for originally? Why is that no longer deemed necessary? Or is there another control that's been put in place that mitigates it? Are we overdoing the work? Any thoughts on that, Ed? I think in terms of why Solvency 2 was brought in, part of the benefit of it has been to establish an EU-wide regulatory framework for the insurance industry. And that has actually helped open up the European market by sort of dealing with differences between individual jurisdictions that previously existed. And now that we've gone through the Brexit transition period and we're kind of coming out the other side, we're starting to have to deal both in insurance and other industries with that headache once again. But for the rest of the EU, it's been simplified as a result of Solvency 2. I think more generally, albeit some regimes had this in advance of Solvency 2, applying a risk-based regime to the holding of capital has also been useful and valuable. And Solvency 2 is built on the foundation of risk-based capital. So to that extent, that's a benefit. That said, the science of regulation, so to speak, is constantly evolving. So it is definitely possible to work within the idea of having a risk-based capital regime and relevant regulatory disclosures, whilst looking at areas where perhaps the regulation hasn't really had that much benefit, but is also posing lots of challenges to insurers, big or small. And that's really the trade-off that you can achieve without having significant compromises when it comes to policyholder protection. So in mentioning the EU-wide framework, that raises the point about sovereignty to equivalence, doesn't it? Whereby there are various non-European countries who've been granted sovereignty to equivalence, which gives insurers operating in those countries a lot of the benefits that they would have if they were in a sovereignty to regulator country. Is the government proposing effectively to walk away from the concept of sovereignty to equivalence, do you think? That's a good question. So at the time of recording, the UK has granted effectively equivalence to all the EU member states for our onshored version of Solvency 2. The EU hasn't been quite so forthcoming in terms of actually signing on the dotted line to provide the UK with reciprocal equivalence, albeit it's in the pipeline. And when you think about the level of input that the UK had to setting up Solvency 2, if there was ever an area where we should be able to achieve equivalence with the EU, it's this. Certainly, though, whilst that's still up in the air, I think any substantial deviations away from what the EU is doing with Solvency 2 do increase the chance that we won't achieve that regulatory equivalence. That will put us at a disadvantage compared to a wide range of quite surprising countries in some senses. So, for example, the US, Japan, Bermuda, Australia, all these countries have been granted some degree of Solvency 2 equivalence, despite having regulatory regimes that look very different in some cases from Solvency 2. So are there different levels of equivalence? And might we find ourselves not necessarily losing equivalence, but being put on some sort of lower level of equivalence? Yes, without going into too much detail, broadly speaking, the ones that matter are equivalence when it comes to group supervision and equivalence when it comes to reinsurance. So if the UK doesn't achieve equivalence for reinsurance, then there's much more red tape for EU firms to go through if they wish to reinsure their business into, for example, Lloyds of London based, well, in the UK. I'm sure that UK insurers would come up with clever ways of getting around that regulation, but it would ultimately be an increase in investment thinking and red tape to overcome that hurdle. 
and to continue to operate existing business models. On the group supervision side, it's also challenging because in theory, what it means is if we don't achieve group supervision equivalents, then if, for example, a UK insurance group wants to set up a entity in the EU in an EU country, and we don't have group equivalents, then in theory, that country's regulator not only has to assess the entity that's being set up in that country, but also the entire insurance group that backs it. And that's not something that many European regulators have the scope and the capability to do on a regular basis. Coming back to the point we made at the beginning, or the point you made, Ed, around is this kind of political rhetoric to some degree and actually the changes are going to be broadly in line with the ones we've already heard of in order to help achieve that equivalence do you think that many of the key features of solvency 2 will have to remain i think no one really knows the eu's mind on this the one thing i would say is that in various other areas the uk has been held to a much higher bar than other areas of the world in order to obtain equivalence and that The reasoning for that has been that the UK is right on the EU's doorstep, whereas other jurisdictions that have perhaps a more relaxed equivalence test, like Australia, are on the far side of the world. So there are naturally often other barriers to trade or exchange of ideas and information that the UK wouldn't have. So I guess to cut to the chase, yes, I think the EU would expect us to remain substantially aligned to not just the principles of risk-based capital, but also to the detailed requirements of Solvency II, if we were to obtain equivalence. That does leave the UK or would leave the UK in a situation of being a regulatory rule taker, which I don't think is government policy in any domain, especially not the financial services regime, given the announcement we had last week. It seems very unlikely to me that the government is thinking much about general insurers in the announcement that it's made. You would have thought that this is mainly thinking about the UK life assurance and pensions and annuity industry, where if there are going to be billions to be freed up for UK-based investment, that's where that money sits. And so as a general insurer, it's almost like you've just got to live with whatever the fallout is of these changes. Would you agree? I think it depends. It strikes me that there is probably more opportunity for life insurers to invest their assets in UK-based infrastructure, given the long-term nature of those projects than there is for general insurers, where even the longest tail liabilities are typically sub-10 years. So yes, when the government prioritises investment, I think that is aimed at life insurers. I think what we're missing, though, is if the reforms are limited to those which obtain better life insurance investment, and that costs us regulatory equivalents with the EU, we're missing an opportunity to make the general insurance industry more competitive through some of those areas that we can act in, that insurers would approve of, and that wouldn't compromise policyholder security to any significant extent. For example, I think we mentioned on the call earlier, the idea of cutting back on some of the regulatory reporting, and also looking at whether we could be more relaxed about how insurers go through the capital setting process. I think that's spot on because I'd say much more than is the case for life insurers, UK general insurers are in a hyper competitive environment and they're competing against insurers from other territories that perhaps don't have as tight regulatory approach as we do. 
So I agree with you. There's a real opportunity here to loosen the shackles somewhat and to enable UK general insurers to become more globally competitive. Will it happen? I feel a little bit sceptical. Well, yes, on that point. So I believe the time scales given in the government's announcement was later this year for providing more details on this. With everything else that's happened, the cost of living, inflation, interest rates, is this actually going to be at the top of their agenda to deal with? I think that because the Treasury has been through a consultation on the matching adjustment and the risk margin, that's almost an oven ready proposal that the government could push through relatively quickly without having to invest much time or energy. I think that also has the advantage that the EU is looking at making relatively similar changes. So the government could make this change itself without necessarily starting yet another firefight with Brussels. And at a time when it seems like there's disagreements on a number of fronts there, that has an advantage. In terms of longer term, more wholesale type reforms, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see those this side of the general election. I think the government's bandwidth is full with a cost of living crisis and self-imposed economic challenge that it's created from its mini budget. So I'd be very surprised to see reforms get announced, get brought before Parliament and get enacted in advance of the next general election. In an event where those reforms did come through quickly, I would be worried about them in any event because Solvency 2 took over a decade to go from conception to implementation. And even now, sort of eight years down the line, we're still in a transitional arrangement. So clearly any wholesale reform is going to take 10 plus, well, potentially take 10 plus years to go through the process of developing and implementing. I wonder whether it's worth spending a few moments thinking about the practical implications, specifically for general insurers, of some of the market disruption that we've seen in the last week. So we've seen interest rates go up. We've seen long-term bond yields go up in a big way, real yields going up. The pound has fallen very significantly. Is it worth us just thinking about, for a general insurer, what are the practical steps that need to be taken to address those? And also, potentially, what are the opportunities? Perhaps I'll kick off with one, which is the Ogden rate, personal injury discount rate. So the Ogden rate gets reviewed every few years, and it's next due to be reviewed in 2024. And certainly as of six months ago, most insurers that we were speaking to felt that it was fairly likely that at the next review, the Ogden rate would go even more negative, which is good for injured claimants, means they get bigger compensation, but it's not good news for insurers who've already got those liabilities and can't charge any extra premium. But the major movements in bond yields in recent weeks potentially mean that that Ogden rate further reduction is no longer on the cards, at least for the time being. So insurers may, that's one element of their risk that may actually have subsided, at least for the time being. I think if anything, in, in my mind, this strengthens the case for a dual rate, albeit that to some extent might be an actuary's worst nightmare having to deal with. I think what we've worked on is this idea that we can look at a basket of goods and come up with a long-term estimate for inflation, and that estimate was starting to get very low. What we've seen is actually a sort of a kick back up towards the old way of thinking and the longer term, higher levels of interest rates and inflation. So it's proof that they haven't gone away forever. To some extent, that problem can be resolved in the Ogden rate setting by having a long-term rate that doesn't really change. 
and is set based on long-term interest inflation investment returns and a short-term rate that responds to whatever the conditions on the ground are every three to five years. And I think that offers some comfort to insurers in that they won't see all of their reserves revalued every three or five years with a bit of a cliff edge, but also allows the government to say that they are responding to the conditions that claimants would expect at the time they get their settlement in the investment market. I tend to agree with you. And I think most motor insurers, for example, that we speak to also feel or felt as of a few months ago that a dual rate was very much on the cards. And I think you've explained very clearly there, Ed, why recent events just illustrate how useful it would be to have a dual rate. What other areas are worth exploring? Well, it would be wrong to mention the events of the past week without talking about inflation. I think we know that we can run a whole podcast on this, and I'm sure we will in due course. But just in terms of what was already a challenging problem for insurers to get their teeth into, ever heightening inflation expectations, the latest round of announcements by the government have pushed longer term inflation expectations for the UK to an even higher level than they were before. So whilst the short term challenges insurers were dealing with, perhaps this hasn't moved the dial very much on, for longer tailed liabilities, insurers might want to be looking at whether their inflation allowances need to go even higher than they already were. Yeah, I think when we spoke about inflation a few months ago on the podcast, Ed, we were all, I think, sceptical about some of the forecasts that were out there, and in particular, the view that this was all going to be over and done with within the next year. And I think we are all very much realising that that is even less likely to be the case now, and we're going to see bigger impacts going forward. For me, it's been the kind of deep dive that we've been doing into inflation in the last few months. It's kind of now extended beyond just inflation to kind of all market economic kind of assumptions. And I think definitely the first time within my career where those haven't almost been a given and actually we need to do a lot more challenging and questioning on those kind of market assumptions and then potentially what other areas do we kind of take for granted sometimes and actually should we be challenging them more? Yeah, I think the key point for what's developed since the last time we talked about inflation is probably that transition from a one-off shock that was going to work through the system or perhaps a two-off shock with COVID then Ukraine to now something that more and more economists and more and more commentators are saying is going to become entrenched. And the government is partly to blame for that to some extent in that their various supply side reforms that they're proposing and the tax cuts that they have put through and slightly rolled back on today are all considered by the markets to be inflationary in not just the short term, but the medium term as well. I think also probably taking it a step further, I'm very much starting to see now this is trickling through into individuals' personal lives. The energy hike has come through. People are starting to see the impact on their mortgages. Are we going to see wider social changes that will affect behaviours and movements in other ways? So are we going to see high propensity to claim as people are feeling squeezed within their pockets, fraud, all those other kind of sometimes impacts you see maybe during a recession? Are we going to start to see those kind of changes coming through over the next year as the real life impact of this starts hitting people? Yes, yeah, certainly. If I was a motor insurer, I would be concerned about increased frequencies of both 
claims that are legitimate but perhaps smaller value or less likely to be brought than they were in the past and also both the underwriting side fraud where people present themselves as lower risk than they really are to get a cheaper policy and of course the claim side fraud if people turn towards criminal activity to make ends meet. It's true to say that many insurers internationally regard sort of claims propensity and the link between claims propensity and recession risk to be an important part of how they manage their overall profitability. And so we're now very much entering that part of the economic cycle where a higher propensity to claim should be expected. For me, one of the interesting aspects of that is that I think there's increased pressure now on firms who provide economic models for insurers and others to use, because so much of the historical data that goes into those models in order to calibrate them is now completely unrepresentative of what we're experiencing. So it's an interesting, but also quite tough time to be a provider of those models. And I think also it's important for insurers to be challenging those models. And I know regulators have got a keen eye on that to make sure firms aren't just believing what the economic model providers are telling them without question. So I think we're coming to the end. And normally, Charles and Jess, this is the point where you would ask me two fun questions. But I have you a bit of a disadvantage this time because you've already asked them. So I might turn it on my head and I might put them to you instead. So starting with Charles, I would ask you what makes your dream career outside of financial services. But any listener who's been on a Teams call (laughs) with Charles will know he has five guitars on his wall in the background. So let's start by asking you instead, if you were having me around to dinner, what would you make? I think the main course would probably be spaghetti carbonara, because I do quite a decent carbonara. The starter, what would be a good starter? I don't actually know. Maybe probably something with some chili in it. It might be a homemade guacamole with quite a bit of chili in it and some stuff to dip in it. And then the dessert would probably be bread and butter pudding. Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah, that sounds really good. I think I said I was going to cook pasta as well when I was last on the podcast. So maybe we can have a pasta (laughs) in exchange. Excellent. And Jess, you've had a bit of time to prep now and I'm not (laughs) springing it on you. So what would your dream career outside of financial services be? I think I harper back to what my dream career was when I was a child, rather than thinking about it right now. But when I was Little, I very much wanted to be a dancer. It's a huge passion in my life. And yeah, I wanted to be a prima ballerina or on the stage. So that would definitely be one of them. Alternatively, I think when I was about 14, I was very much convinced I was going to be prime minister. So maybe I could give Liz Truss a run for her money. (laughs) There there might be a vacancy soon. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much, Ed, for coming back this week. It's been great to wade through the unknowns that we have at the moment and discuss what the implications might be. Well, yeah, great to come back. Thank you for having me. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. 
All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.